This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Not to be rude or anything, but uh, what are you? <laughs> no, I mean, costume. I'm a body bag. I thought the invitation said, come as you are. Well, how are you a body bag? A synthetic shell with a corpse inside. Everybody and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz and I'm Gil Adler. Our guest today is a guy named Bill Malone, who a terrific director. He he directed, for my money, one of the best episodes of Tales from the Crypt ever. Uh, only skin deep. We'll talk about that. But Bill has an amazing story of his own. It's got some truly unexpected twists and turns it goes to some forbidden places i would say and he's a very gifted filmmaker that we had the we had the pleasure and the honor of working with all those years ago on a number of projects including tales from the crypt we we have been in the in the trenches and and in the wars with with bill on on numerous occasions with the bombs going off over our heads here's bill those of us who worked on Tales from the Crypt together, that was a really special experience. It, it was. It was an amazing time, really. And it was a great time to be to, to be making those those things. You know, it's a I don't think I've ever told this anybody, but what, like when I got the script, I went, I was made for this show. You know? yeah. like, oh, and and that's the story that we're going to tell as we ha- now have this conversation. Yeah. By 14, you were making home movies with an eight millimeter camera and, designing, and designing monster masks. Correct, yes. I would read all the monster magazines and there was like a, uh, one called, uh, was, there was of course Famous Monsters, but there was also Fantastic Monsters of the Films, which was done by a guy named Paul Blaisdell, who created like, you know, the uh, uh, she-creature and, uh, you know, it conquered the world and all that stuff. Anyway, but he had like an article on how to make masks and stuff. So I, you know, started sculpting and so forth. And finally, actually, I wound up writing to Dick Smith and he was kind enough to send me a whole bunch of information. And, wow. and by the time I was 14, I was making foam latex masks, which I didn't think anything of it. But but apparently that was a very advanced for my age. But uh, anyway, it was. What was the, can you remember the first monster movie or horror movie you saw that it just I remember distinctly. Uh, it was at the Lucan Theater in East Lansing, Michigan. And my mother, God bless her, and I have no idea why she did this. We stood in line in pouring rain to see Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Oh. I was uh, seven years old. Yeah, seven years old. And oh. I remember spending most of the movie like this, you know, under the seats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, can I, I use, can I have used a mother like that? <laughs> no, she was great. She was always like into like taking me to see <laughs> scary stuff and so forth. So it was it was great. And I and I remember coming home and going, "Oh, that was really scary," but I liked it. It set off something inside your head, apparently. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was it was there was uh it was something I think particularly because the creature. Those in the first movie, the underwater sequences had a kind of dreamy quality about them. There was something about 
Riku Browning swimming and just the way that was shot and the and it was like it was actually the suit itself was sort of if you think about it, sort of HR Giger before Giger. Mm. You know, it had the sort of repeating patterns and all of that stuff. And it was the first Giger monster before Giger. Yeah. And I remember just being really just taken with it. And there'd be occasionally I'd find find something in a magazine where there'd be a little picture. I'd cut it out and, you know, glue it to my books and stuff. Something in the image, obviously, it 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 connected with something primal inside of you. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, like I said, it was, there was something dreamy and about uh, otherworldly about it, and uh, I think that's what I liked about it. And something in you wanted to recreate it. Yeah, you know, when I went to monster movies, I always like identified with the monster, not the hero. You mm-hmm. know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right uh all right so you but there was also music was you also played music uh you played in a beatles inspired garage band called the plagues that's correct yes and when the beatles came out i just was i remember i i was there you know like I, i'm sure gill was and probably everybody was on sunday night february the 9th 1964 it's sullivan. sullivan show and <laughs> I, you know what I remember is that that Friday was one world. Monday morning, it was a completely different world. Mm. Once the Beatles, and I remember going to school, and there was no conversation going on other than about the Beatles. It, the teachers, everybody, it was all the topic of conversation. Mm. And the entire world had changed in, in, over that weekend. I, I think that's very true. I think it was maybe the first time that youth-oriented pop culture had had really overtaken culture, period. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I've, I've wanted to, because young people who are, you know, listen to the Beatles now, they don't quite understand the impact that they had. And I always wanted to have a party where, you know, like just you play all of the crap music from 1963, and at the end of the party, you play I Want to Hold Your Hand, and you'll totally get... <laughs> why the Beatles became such a big hit. See, for me, after seeing that show, all of a sudden, Ed Sullivan was cool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I walked around going, human erector set. (laughs) Yeah, I always think he was a schmuck. And then, you know, he was very gawky. And I I always wondered, how the hell did he get this job? And after that (laughs) night, I was like, you know, he's really a cool guy. I really like this guy. (laughs) And he booked him for three nights in a row, consecutive uh, shows, which was amazing. At 19, you you move out here to sunny Southern California. Yeah, I came out with a hundred bucks in my pocket and uh, and stayed in El Segundo. I thought I went. This this isn't so cool. I keep hearing about cool uh, LA is. What 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 year was was this that 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 you landed? Nineteen sixty-seven, summer of love. Wow, boy, boy, boy! What what an interesting time to have landed here. Oh, it was amazing. And one of the first things I did was actually, um, I think the first month that I was out here was the Monterey Pop Festival. And uh, somebody said, you want to go to the Monterey Pop Festival? I said, well, I don't have tickets. And they said, well, we're going. You just, you'll probably get in somehow. And so I had a really good camera. I had like a Hasselblad. And because I was always into photography, and I took that with me. And I, when I got there, I ran, bumped into this guy who was a photographer. I said, I, I got to get in somehow. And he said, well, he said, look, go to Derek Taylor, who's the who's the guy that's 
running the, the the press passes, go up to him and tell him that you're shooting pictures for Bob Krasnow of Kamasutra Records. I did that. They gave me a press pass, and I was backstage for most of Monterey Pop. Oh, my and I've got great pictures that I shot. And uh, to this day, I don't know if there really was a Bob Krasnow. But... <laughs> <laughs> wow. And where can one see those pictures? Oh, I'll, from... I'll gladly send you copies of them. Yeah, there's... I would love I've got, pictures, I've got pictures of all those dead guys. You know, I got uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Jazz Joplin and, uh, you know. Uh... Oh, I would love to see them. Would you mind if we shared them? Oh no! I'll I'll send you some. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. That, yeah, that, me your, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, emails. I'll just yeah, send yeah. We'll, we'll 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 trade all that information. But no, no, that that would that would be most excellent to be able to uh, to to put that up. Uh, cool. You you found your way into the film business doing costume and makeup. Well, yeah, I started out just doing um, uh, makeup. Uh, actually, I got a job. I was. Uh, uh, basically broke, you know, I was broke most of my life, actually. <laughs> but but uh, I, I went over to Don Post Studios, which was a, a mask making company, but they also sold makeup supplies and things like that. And I went over to them to buy some stuff. And I'd been working on a copy of, of, of Robbie the Robot. I was infatuated with Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet. So I was building we, we, we will come to that. Yeah, I was, but anyway, I was building this replica. I took pieces of it over, and they invited me to work for them. So wow. I started on the same day. Bob Short, the effects guy, Bob Short, Robert Short, uh, started, and we were painting three hundred line Frankenstein's, which was like the cheap Frankenstein masks, and and that's how I started out doing that. And then ultimately, I became the vice president of the company. And um, one of my weirder claims to fame is I sculpted the Captain Kirk mask, which became the Michael Myers mask from Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How the hell did that happen? We were trying to get licenses for, because uh, the only license they, that they had at the time was stuff from Universal. And we were trying to get other licenses. Uh, so we went to Fox and we really wanted Star Trek, but we wanted the monsters, you know, the salt vampire and the, the all that stuff. And they said, no, if you're going to have that, you got to you got to make Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. Right. OK, so so we I got a life cast of William Shatner and, and made what they call a clay press, which is basically pressing clay into a mold of his face. And then I sculpted the rest of it. And we made a Captain Kirk mask. And then John Carpenter and his crew came in. They said, uh, could you paint one white, spray paint the hair black? I said, okay. So we did. And uh, I have pictures of, I, I had them actually make me a, another copy of it, which unfortunately I don't have anymore. So but, actually the origin of the, of the Michael Myers mask is Bill Shatner. It is. It is Bill Shatner. I thought he's, they already missed a bet. You know, they, at the end of the movie, you see him for a moment. They should have pulled it off and had it be Bill Shatner. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, good God. That, that would have been transcendent. <laughs> that is that is that is such a cool little detail. Uh, how, how, how does the world not know that? That's that's crazy. Uh, you also work for Dan Curtis of Dark Shadows fame. I did. Uh, but you didn't do Dark Shadows. You you did. No, I, I worked on a couple of his shows. I did a thing called the Norless Tapes, 
and uh, and then his Frankenstein uh, 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 version that he did here in the U.S. when he was at Metro Media. And Dan is the only person who's actually ever physically thrown me out of an office. Yeah. <laughs> physically <laughs> he was a kind of a cranky guy i don't know if you ever met dan but he was apparently kind of, so yeah he was a cranky guy and i just asked him once about jonathan frid from dark shadows and for some reason it just set him off and he grabbed me and literally threw me out of the office and threw me into the hallway and slammed the door <laughs> so i guess he he was unhappy with jonathan frid I guess I don't know why. He was friend. <laughs> uh, my notes also say that you also did some uh, uncredited uh, acting work in in films, in, including uh, you played Beetle George Harrison, and I want to hold your hand. I did actually. That was a, that was kind of like a, a, just a circle of life because yeah, uh, yeah. You know, because there I was a big Beatle fan and a, a friend of mine named Rich Carell, who was the uh, at that time, the um, music editor on the film. Uh, on I Want to Hold Your Hand, Bob Zemeckis's movie, said they were looking for somebody to play George Harrison. They'd been through the entire uh, union, the musicians union, couldn't find anybody who could look like a Beatle and play the songs. And he said, uh, you want to try out? So I had still had my jacket from the plagues, which was like the old Beatles jacket. Sure. Yeah. So I put that on. It still fit me. That wouldn't fit me now. <laughs> but uh, I, I put that on and uh, went in and met Bob Zemeckis. He says, you're hired. So there was. So I woke up one morning. It's 1964. And I'm on the Ed Sullivan show singing She Loves You. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. At what point did you start collecting? Uh, I started collecting kind of when I first got out here because um, somebody, you know, I had, I had a few things that I just made and then somebody came over and said, well, I know where this is, you know, and, and it was some monster mask. And then he came back and gave me, gave me this mask. And then it just sort of, uh, sort of blossom from there. And, and I started finding out that the studios were throwing stuff away. Mm. And I said, this stuff is too cool to throw. You can't throw this away. And they were literally throwing it in the dump. So I said, oh. okay. I, I put out to all my friends, get me whatever is going in the dump. I want it. Oh my so, God. So people would show up with stuff. And then I, I became a dumpster diver myself. I, uh, uh, the best thing that ever happened was I became friends with a guy named Jimmy McLennan, who was the head of construction at MGM. And mm -hmm. he had worked on Forbidden Planet. And I went over there and I was, I, I basically told him, I said, I want to save this stuff because it's all getting thrown out. And he said, you're my man. And he gave me a pass. It was, it was like for three days. And Bob Short and I could raid the studio and whatever we could find, we would bring it to him, and he, he. The only thing we couldn't do was put it on the truck. It had to be a union guy putting it on the truck, but it's he sold this. I remember this one room we took us to, which was in the motor pool, which is in the back of the uh, back of lot one. Dusty old building, like an old shed. Second floor. He opens the doors, and there's most of the Krell Lab from Forbidden Planet, you know. And he says, uh, "Do you want to buy this? I'll sell you the whole room." And I, I said, "Well, how much do you want?" Uh, 350 
Oh, but you know what I turned down there is, and I turned it down because I didn't have a place for it. The, sitting right there were the green machines from the wizard from Wizard of Oz. You know, the, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, I had no place to, and then they wanted to give me the bottom of the saucer from Forbidden Planet. I'm talking about the full size one, which was a hundred and thirty feet across or something. It was all in pieces, mind you. But yeah, well, all right. Let's 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 get into Forbidden Planet. Let's 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 that this 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 captivated you from the first time you saw it. Uh, it did, you know, I mean, uh, look, it was like the Star Wars of its time, you know, when the uh, the opening shots, the flying saucer coming overhead, and which, you know, which the Star Wars used later. And, uh, and of course, Robbie the Robot, which was great. I was 10 years old when that came out, it's nine. The guy who directed it, Fred Wilcox, okay. he's, uh, he's a journeyman. Otherwise, although, you know, Forbidden Planet is a case of it's not a film that was an auteur film. It was a it was a film about that the machine at MGM was just in such fine tune at that point yeah. that they could make something astounding. And I actually became friends with um, Arthur Lonergan, who was the art director. And he, what he told me, which was great, is he told me that Cedric Gibbons, who was the head of the art department of the of all of MGM, hated Forbidden Planet. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And in retrospect, I think it's probably because he had made a movie years ago called Mysterious Island in 1929, and that tanked miserably. And they spent a ton of money on it. And he probably thought Forbidden Planet was going to be another one of those. <clears throat> uh, but anyway, Arthur Lonergan, uh, uh, he told me that what they he would do is he just sent the stuff off to be built without going through budgeting, knowing full well the budgeting would catch up with them, but they, they would come back to him and go, what are you doing? It's a, oh no, I thought this was all okay. I mean, you know, we're halfway built. The stuff's already, you know, uh, half built. We've got to finish it up. <laughs> so that's how that got, got to be what it was. So it's, it's really Arthur Lonergan who's really the, the hero behind this, yeah. Oh, in, indeed. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just—it's fascinating that this this guy, Fred Fred Wilcox, he's got two films on on the registry because he's got this. You know, he's still the director of of of, of credit and and uh, the, the Lassie, Lassie, Come Home. Yeah, I think he also did a movie called The Secret Garden, which was a really kind of a nice movie. He did, and 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 that's that seems like it's it's the one where there's you might get a glimpse of, hey, this guy actually was a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. There, it's a really interesting film. It's about this kid who's kind of a, 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 a troublesome kid and, and he's in a rich family. And But there's this garden in, in his mansion that he's not allowed to go in. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a girl comes along and a little girl and talks him into like breaking into it and stuff. So. The, the rest of his career is quite it's wow it yeah, yeah they, they they didn't seem to they didn't give him a whole lot of great assignments a lot of his pictures lost lost money uh when after he did forbidden planet which made money it it, it made a little bit of a profit for them at the time the last movie he did was a thing called i passed for white oh, yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah a, a really a wow, a strange, strange movie. So anyway, it, it's that this pivotal movie in in the history of science fiction was was made by a guy who was just a just a studio a studio guy. Well, you know, I worked with uh, I had the pleasure of working with Anne Francis, directing her in a in a TV episode, and <laughs> I asked her about uh, Fred Wilcox, and she said that he didn't talk to her very much, and you know. <laughs> And his, <laughs> his only direction to the cast was that he wanted to take the material seriously. I, I think the thing about Forbidden Planet too is if you watch it as uh, it's remarkable for the score because yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. William B.B. Barron, who I became friends with B.B., uh, that score, to even think about putting that score to a movie at that time was like just, I mean, Dory, Dory Sherry, God bless him, you yeah. know? It, it really it's so completely outside the box it is eerie all by its lonesome it's yeah. and it plays as music and sound effects at the same time what a great idea yeah yeah it's a funny place for lightning to strike it's funny i i just rewatched it knowing we were going to have this conversation i had not seen forbidden planet since i was in college i i i had not seen it and it really it's funny i a couple things stru struck me about it. The it's so imaginative of, of the technology. The the idea of the teletransportation. It, it's got some some really clever thinking where technology is concerned. And yet, when 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 the captain wants wants to talk to the to everyone on on the ship, he picks up the microphone. And he sounds like he's making train announcements in Grand Central Station. The one thing I think about Forbidden Planet is it's it's a perfect condensation of the 1950s, if you think about God, it. God, yes. It, oh, you are so, that is so bang on correct. Oh, my God, it is. It's it's hilarious. that way. And yet, Aunt Frances is so, she's outside the box. She's yummy. <laughs> Just once more, do you mind? Not at all. I don't know, Lieutenant. There must be something seriously the matter with me because honestly, I haven't noticed the least bit of stimulation. Her character is made to go along, to get along, and, and to be the girl. But left to her own devices, that's not her. She, yeah. There are some line readings that are really delicious. Yeah. Simply because they're so, no, she, this is, nobody on, on board that spaceship could possibly have handled her. She was way too smart for anybody, not a single yeah. human, not a single person on, on that, on that spaceship. She um, is, she's the smartest person in the room. I think she's even smarter than, than her dad, frankly, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, she, she's great. And you know, the, you, you mentioned the, the film just as, as the con conceptual I think, uh, personally, I think Forbidden Planet is the greatest science fiction concept uh, ever. You know, it, I can't think of another film. If you think about the whole history of the Krell and, you know, the machine that's able to, you know, take the, the subconscious thoughts and turn them into solid material. And, and you know, and that's what killed off the, the Krell and just the it's just such a good concept. It's like, it's been ripped off so many times, you know. It, it is so timely to this very second yeah. in time. Hey, it's very timely to, to, to what the Writers Guild is striking about because that's what we're arguing about. 
This is artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's when a thing of our creation becomes smarter than us and we can no longer control it or contain it or manage it. Yikes. Uh, yeah, the 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 Krell have have been the the, the source of their own destruction. It's interesting because that film was originally going to be a low budget movie. They were going to take it to allied artists and and uh, uh, Irving Block and Alan Adler. Irving Block was a, a, a art director and painter and and effects guy, and and uh, he and Alan Adler came up with the idea, and they and they were going to take it to allied artists, and their agent said, "No, no, you got to take this to MGM." Mm. You know? He said, well, how do we sell it to MGM? He said, well, how about just stomp around the office and do the invisible monster thing? <laughs> he did. Finally, we, we, we come to Robbie. Yeah. And uh, from the moment you saw Robbie, it was love. It was love at first sight. Yeah, I just, when I was a kid, you know, one of the ways that I wound up sculpting was because there were no toys of like Robbie the Robot or anything like that when I was a kid. Gil, you remember when we were kids, there was no toys. There was no sci-fi toys. It was like, oh. you know, the, the most you could get is a stupid plastic space helmet or something well, like that. or Captain uh, Video. That, exactly. <laughs> One thing that was that's changed so much from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s and after that is that, and I found this by working with Dick Fleischer a long, long time ago, is that directors then were journeymen of telling the story that they were given. They really didn't participate in developing that story. Whereas directors today are very involved with the story and the characters and, oh, we'll tell it this way, we'll tell it that way. In those days, I remember Dick Fleischer telling me a story that when when, when Disney hired him, um, they gave him the script and they, they said, go make it, you, you go make it. And so he always approached all his movies as, okay, give me the script and I'll make it. And he never participated in concept or, yeah. and in those days, that's really what they did. It was only in, in years later where they became involved with the storytelling, involved with the development and ge and generating character and, and, and emotion to those characters. But in those days, they really came in and they said, okay, you're the director, go do it. They yeah. were a bit like uh, directors in, in, in TV for the most part. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're traffic cops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, good. You know, it, it's important to be a good traffic cop. A shitty traffic cop can 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 make a mess of things. Uh, Robbie, the original Robbie, uh, cost about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars to make. Yeah, nineteen fifty-five when they built them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but that made him very expensive for them. Uh, yeah, because the entire budget of the film, I think, was only one point two or something. Uh, like that. I have it at one point nine, and he was seven percent of it. Yeah. Which is huge. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's like hiring Dennis Miller to no, that's 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 always that's, that's not even as bad as hiring Dennis Miller to be the lead in your fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. There was a, a an actor inside of Robbie. Well, there's actually two. Yeah, there was a, a they uh, initially got Frankie Darrow, who was a, a child star and later was doing you know some other character work and stuff. To, to be in Robbie, but uh, Frankie had a little problem yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. the tubes there. And uh, so uh, uh, he literally uh, showed, showed up drunk one day and they, they had. Yeah, to well, I, it's actually the opening scene of the film when he steps out of the 
uh, <laughs> bar. And apparently he was gonna he started to go over and like a, three prop guys went running and grabbed Robbie <laughs> before he smashed him because there was only one Robbie the robot. They didn't oh, but now today you'd make what three or four of them or oh, something God. like that backups, but he was so expensive and so high tech at the time that that they couldn't afford to do that. So, you know, yeah. So he got fired pretty quickly. And uh, they got another guy, fortunately named Frankie, a guy named Frankie Carpenter, who I spoke with recently. He's still alive. And Frankie, uh, he he came in and did the rest of it. And, he, and Frankie was actually much better at working the costume. You can kind of see it when he first comes out, Robbie's kind of like, but later on, he's like very fluid and, and stuff like that. And the other guy was much better at it. So he was much more, I think, athletic. It took a weird person to be inside Robbie because he had to be like five foot five, skinny as a rail huh. and super strong. <laughs> How did you initially acquire Robbie? Well, I built a replica, which I had for uh, on, um I probably about five years. And then uh, I got a call from a, a friend of mine who was down in Buena Park because they, they had sold Robbie to a guy who had bought a whole bunch of stuff from uh, from MGM and, and Robbie was part of what they bought. And um, anyway, uh, that place was going out of business. And my friend called me up and said, you better get down here because they're selling everything in the place, including Robbie. And I'm sure the phone didn't hit the floor before I was in the car. So, <laughs> I'm Sure. Okay. So you get there. So I get there and there's Robbie. He's not in the best of condition. He's like kind of all, you know, uh, in, in number of pieces, all stuff that could be fixed, but he was, uh, so, I, uh, and you know, I was able to make a deal on him. I bought him and, I took him home right then. I said, there's no way I'm, I'm not leaving him there to come back for him later. Can I ask what, what you bought him for? I paid $5,000 for him. But this is in 1980. And that was still a good chunk of change back then. It was. Yeah. 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 But there's only one Robbie. And Robbie was the basis for so much. I mean, he was using so many different things. He wasn't just in one movie. My first wife was jealous of Robbie because Robbie had a better... Career as an actor. <laughs> yeah, yikes. <laughs> you know, the thing about Robbie was that he was a character, but he was a character. Yeah. Yeah. But, he uh, did a lot. He did like uh, what? Uh, Hazel. He did Twilight, uh, two or three Twilight Zones. He did a the Thin Man episode. He did, uh, uh, yeah, just a. Um, uh, and, and he ended up in in in, in somewhere in in, a, in the back of a warehouse somewhere in, in pieces. Man, this town just fucks everybody, doesn't it? It does, you know. But but it, it had a happy ending because I bought him and I, yeah. I spent probably a year and a half restoring him and doing, you know, and and trying to get him back to the way he was when he was new. All right, which and uh, did you get he him did, back? He did smell. I'll tell you, he, did. <laughs> he had a little bit of bo from all those years. <laughs> huh. Were you able to cure Robbie's B.O.? Uh, no, not actually. No, it's kind of hard to. Oh, huh. well, that's un that's unfortunate for Robbie. But oh, well, <laughs> it was a combination of of probably uh, 30 years, 40 years of sweat and uh, and then the plastic itself. And we, the alcohol. We, <laughs> yeah, we will come to, to Robbie's eventual fate. Uh, meanwhile, life life goes on. You. Uh, you you were determined to 
to make movies of your own. Yeah, from the time I was a young kid, I was making little eight millimeter movies, and I I just wanted to continue doing that, you know. And and um, uh, when I got out here, I, I have to admit I got si- slightly sidetracked in the music business for for a little while, and then uh, uh, finally, uh, you know, like I said, I got got into working at Don Post, and then kind of got back into it. And I remember a day at, I was finally at Don Post, and the and I was getting toxic from the chemicals. I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go make movies. And I remember I, driving home. I said, I'm not a, I'm not a makeup guy anymore. I'm a director. And I said, that was, and that was just a conscious decision. I said, that's what I'm doing. I'll go. I don't care if I go broke doing it. That's what I'm doing. The first time that uh, we all kind of encountered each other together where you're directing, I'm writing, you're doing it all is freddy's nightmares freddy's nightmares yeah <laughs> you know i i have to tell you i had such a ball doing that show and gil was great on it and the, the entire crew uh you know it was what crime time after prime time or something like that what it aired at like two in the morning or something yeah, yeah, if 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 the local station managed to, to, to actually put it on the air yeah it, it and, was syndicated and, it was syndicated so it really was up to the local station to, yeah. to determine when it would be on yeah yeah but i remember it seemed like you have to what you know get up at one o'clock in the morning or two in the morning to watch yeah. it but what's good about it was the 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 powers that be the guys that were over gill didn't really care so much about the show as long as it came in on time and on budget so uh so we could try out any wacky ideas that we had and we we did so uh, i mean gill did and i did the thing about freddy's nightmares for for those who who don't know what that show was it was a it was the nightmare on elm street tv series it was an anthology and freddy was the was the uh was the crypt keeper right uh before and, the, Robert, and, Rob, and we had robert england and robert england yeah yeah, yeah. Kruger. The, which, which i have to say one of the things i, I remember distinctly was I, I was shooting my episode at the same time i was shooting the wraparounds so i was and they were on two different stages and i'd have to like run over there and go shoots with with Robert England, and they, I'd get this call. No, you gotta come back over here. We're ready to go. So I'd run back, and I think I lost like twenty pounds doing. That. <laughs> it, it was that kind of show for for all the creative, for all the creatives. You know, the the original idea was the first season was that yeah, it was an hour show for syndication. But what if they could break them up into half hours? And it was shot in five days. An hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but every episode had to be. An hour that worked, but it had to work as two half hours independently as well, plus right. a whole hour that made sense. And we had 22 hours. Oh, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was 22 little puzzles from, from a storytelling perspective. Uh, but then the second season, oh, the executive producers, the guys with the money got got really adventurous. They said, uh, we could sell these things in Europe as two-hour movies. So a, a, a two episodes had to work as a two-hour movie as two one-hour shows and four half-hour half-hours. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I, I don't know how... Gil, was that show shot on 16 or 35? I can't really remember. I think it was... Oh, do you know something? I think it was, was 16. Like 35, but, you know, as you said, 16. It was 16. It was 16. Yeah. It was super 16, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but we went nuts. We went nuts trying to figure out the half hour, making the hour, making the two hour. 
you know, it was it was wild. I mean, no, I remember my I, I did an episode that had Elvis in it. You know, like dead Elvis, and <laughs> and uh, I remember that they were trying to tie the episodes together, and so that yeah, yeah it was it was it was crazy. And, but in uh, five days for the hour. Right, five days to shoot an hour episode. So, so the page count per day was had. What did that have to be about? Uh, about 10. 10, 10 pages a day. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and if the actor got anywhere near the line, you go, yeah, cut, print, moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> funny, funny story with that is when I met Joel Silver about Tales from the Crypt. He said to me, you know, you have to fight, you have to shoot five pages every day, day in and day out. It's got to look like a film, but you have to shoot five pages. Do you think you could shoot five pages every day? And I said, well, what do we do after lunch? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, you did three Freddy's, three, three Freddy's Nightmares episodes in all. I, I did. And, and I, you know, my recollection of it was I was always trying to do shots, which I didn't understand that I needed a tech, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, Technocrane. Technocrane. Yeah, technocrate. Yeah. But I was always trying to do it on a dolly. Why is this so hard? <laughs> <laughs> and and did they spring for your technocrane? Oh hell no! <laughs> well, in those there, days, there's the problem. Just the name technocrane was it was a really dirty word around our show. <laughs> yeah. Anybody hey, who said it, we would go, "What? What's he talking about? We don't know what that is." Then we all move on. Life goes on, and, and eventually, tales from the crypt happens. Right. And, and Gil, you were on that for what five seasons before I was on. So, we were, yeah, Alan and I were both on it for a yeah. really, really long time. You know, we yeah. we got on it together, and uh, we hang we hung in there all those seasons. And you know, in retrospect, it was a real joy. It, it was difficult, and I remember coming home many nights, very frustrated and very angry and very upset. Not with Alan, but with, you know, Joel and the partners and sometimes HBO, but it can be very politically challenging. Yeah. But it was, but it was something that was really close to our hearts and we really, yeah, we really dug it. I mean, we really, really liked doing it. Yeah. It was at that time, TV and, and features were, were, had nothing to do with each other. <clears throat> there was, there was almost no crossover. You'd get an occasional Tom Hanks or Robin Williams heading from TV into features, but if, if you were heading from features into TV, that meant your career was, was sliding down into nowheresville. Uh, suddenly these, these, you know, HBO had a couple of their own TV shows, uh, first in 10, they had, uh, oh, that, uh, that show with Brian Ben Ben, but you know, there was a dream TV on. Show. Yeah. Dream on. Yeah, yeah. But you know, those were TV shows with TV show uh, with swearing and tits. Yeah. That was what made them HBO. And suddenly you had. Well, I'm the, not knocking, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no, 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 of course. But, then, you know, then these these four and a half uh, big, you know, big machas in the, from Hollywood suddenly approach HBO. They want to do this, you know, they want little features every week. Yeah. And that was that was the unusual thing. And, and uh, John Kassir. And they got all the top stars to do it, you know. That was part of the that was the deal. John Kassir tells tells the story uh, when they were showing the, the first three episodes. It was uh, you know Donner's uh, terrific episode, uh, "Dig This Caddy's Real Gone," Walter Hill's uh, "The Man Who Was Death," and uh, uh, Mackenzie's you know, Christmas episode. Uh, 
and they showed it for, I think the, the press was there and the whole crew was there and it was quite impressive. And in the first row, as, as they're watching it, one guy looks at the next guy and says, wow, this is, uh, this, this is great TV. And the other guy says, no, it's not TV, it's HBO. And then the next row were two HBO executives who looked at each other and said, that's our slogan. And so Tales from the Crypt is what turned HBO from TV into HBO. That happened, you know, it was a crossroads where, you know, there were all these talented people from the feature films. And, and what, what Gil especially brought was the expertise of how to make a TV show. Because the first two seasons, they didn't treat it like a TV show. And that's why they got into trouble at the end of the second season. They ended up a million dollars in the hole. They didn't even no. set it up like a TV show. Now, were you, were you guys on from the, be from the get-go? No. No. We, no. we didn't do the first two seasons because uh, we, I got a call from, from Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, uh, because I had done some work for him on, on Vietnam War stories and everything. And he, he would call me in when there was a problem. And he called me in and, and he told Joel, <clears throat> we're not going to renew the show because you, you went a million bucks over. And unless you're going to give me a check for a million bucks, which of course, you know, Joel and Dick and Bob and Walter went, huh? We're not, we don't write checks. And, and they said, then it's canceled. And so, so Chris called me up and he said, meet with Joel and you're going to have to make up the million dollars in the next order. Can you do that? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what we're talking about. And so that was the mandate. You have to, you have to make the shows, but you have to make up the million dollars. And we did it. And but we also made changes um, that Alan and I felt were important to the, you know, what what we felt the show was and pitched them to uh, to Joel. And I'm, I'm curious, what were the changes? What did, how did you there were, there were like three main changes. One was the Crypt Keeper in those first episodes was dressed in a shroud, poorly lit. Very dangerous. Always the same. He, he said this, basically said the same thing again and again and again. And my question was, okay, what does he do at the end of the day when he, he stops being the Crypt Keeper? He goes home and what does he do? Who are his friends? What, is he, what are his hobbies? Uh, you know, what would he like to watch on TV himself when, when he's not working on TV? And I wanted to give him a whole inner life. So we said, we said to Joel, well, we want to make him a chiropractor. We want to make a dentist. We want to make a, yeah. we want to make, he's going to be a beetle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I remember Joel rolling his eyes when we told him this and then he said, okay, what else? What else? He said, there, there were three things. I said, well, you know, the comic books were written in the fifties. And if you read the first two panels, you know, the whole show. And that doesn't, you can't do, you can't use the comic book as per se. We'll use the title. And then we want to, we want to rewrite it. We want to make it sexy. We want to make it funny. We want to make it twisted. But, you know, the basis will be the comic book, but you can't use the comic book. And he said, you know, he didn't care about that. And and um, and the third one was we said we want to go after stars. And he said, well, you know, you can't do that because HBO isn't going to pay what they paid for the stars that we used in the first three episodes. And I said, I didn't say anything about paying stop paying more money we're still going to pay scale plus 10 yeah. but i want to get stars and he you know he sort of laughed in my face and said you're never going to be able to do that no one's going to get, do that and i said well look if you agree with these three things then i think alan and i are the guys to do the show and and if you don't that's okay but then i think you should you know we should part ways 
Now, whether he believed that we could deliver these things or not, or he just realized, didn't listen to me after he heard that I would I would make up the million dollars that he owed HBO, I don't know. <laughs> Nothing else matters. He looked at me and he said, okay, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. We just made it smarter. We, you know, you got a problem. You, you write yourself out of it. You don't, you know, you can't spend your way out and, and you can't, you know, diminish the value of the, the story, the storytelling. You, you have to, it's all, it's all here. Uh, what was great, I must I say, what was great about Alan and I working together is that when we were confronted with problems like that, and we've realized we had to fix it in the writing, which, which mainly meant a simplification, we also looked to make it better. So it wasn't like, oh, we'll dumb it down a little bit, and therefore we can afford it because it's not as complicated, and we'll get it done. We really looked to see how can we replace what we have to take out because of money with something that's better and smarter. And we were able to do that on a lot of occasions. Sometimes it didn't didn't and happen. Well done, and well done, guys. I mean, because it really, I mean, I think those shows really stand out as really uh, excellent shows. Thanks, thanks for Thank saying you. that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think it it brought the best out of all of us. Um, by the time we were able to finally give you a a, a, a directing slot, and and directing slots were hard hard to come by. I'm sure uh, we had, you know, if there weren't the names that we were going for, we were also a favor uh, factory. Uh, sometimes if the executive producers wanted to try out a someone who hadn't directed before, we were going to be the boot camp. And so they held a lot of those slots very close to to uh, to their vest and and used them as as both favors, but also to to try out, especially a lot of writers who they wanted to give a, a you know, shot directing a feature uh so when we were finally able to give you a slot you you took you took full advantage of the opportunity you well, we, well i have to tell i have to tell you some things about which i don't think we've ever talked about this you guys sent me the script i read the script and tears came to my eyes because i said i know exactly how to do this i know yeah. this is the perfect script for me i know exactly what this should be yeah yeah uh, I never actually, it never even occurred to me that it would ever lead to anything. In other words, I, I went in like a kamikaze pilot. I was said, I don't care. They're going to fire me. I'm just going to make the best show that I can make. <clears throat> whatever happens, happens. You know, Gil, I have to apologize for what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, Greg Melton, I, here's the thing. I wanted to make a show an episode where the, the, the set was completely minimalistic. <laughs> and I knew that Joel and the entire thing about the show was for it to be big and rich and stuff like that. And so I, I, I thought, if I go in and pitch this, they're going to go, no. So <laughs> I got together with Greg Milton. And I said, I want you to design the most elaborate set that you can think of. For this apartment. <laughs> so I remember bringing it into your office, showing it to you, and you and you went, oh, fuck. <laughs> we can't make this. This is ridiculous. And I said, you know, Gil, I have another idea. If we can just go with this. <laughs> <laughs> it was a setup, you bastard. <laughs> so I apologize. I because you probably would have gone for it anyway. But but you know something? It's really interesting that you said you really knew how to direct that script when you read it. Yeah. So I remember you coming into the office and saying that. 
Really? Yeah. And I really remember going, oh, this is great. And I think we had a conversation about why you felt that way. Yeah. And it made a lot of sense. It yeah. really made a lot of sense to me. And I was like, I remember, got, I remember getting very excited because here's a guy, one of the directors, because we were dealing with, you know, some big directors and maybe some not so big directors, but here's a guy who really thought it out. And I remember being very impressed that you had done that thinking. Yeah, well, like I say, I was just totally in, into that script, and I said, "This is, you know, I, I really want to make the most of this." And yeah. you know, and, and I don't, I don't know if you remember too. Is we uh, uh, we had trouble casting it because of the sort of raw nature of it. Yeah. Uh, oh, I have to tell you one thing too. Is I don't know who said. I heard somebody in one of the offices say something like, "Oh, well, Billy Friedkin. Oh, you should see his episode because it's really sexy and raw." And I, I went. I remember going. Oh yeah, <laughs> take that challenge. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I did stuff I never thought they would ever air. You know, the whole scene with them in you know making love on the in the on the floor, and and uh, I remember asking you for a uh, stage crane, and I and God bless you, because I, I didn't think you were going to let me have the stage crane, but you ordered the stage crane, and I did the shot. <laughs> Coming down out of the ceiling and down onto her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I remember turning the show in. Uh, I was editing it at, with uh, what's his name, Stan Wahlberg. Was that? I see Stan yeah. Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he was the editor on it, and he I was. was editing it. And I, I took it home, and I, uh, temped music to it, and the music. I'd gotten some stuff from the killing fields. I, I plopped the piece in and it hit every friggin' edit perfect. And I went, this can't be, you know? <laughs> and I remember I, I turned it in. I thought, this is like, they're either going to love this or they're going to hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite episodes and, and we didn't write it. Oh. So fuck that shit. <laughs> and for Alan, Alan to say that, that's, that's, that, that tells you a lot. <laughs> Well, uh, well. Anyway, I, I, God bless you guys for the support because I, yeah, I remember getting a lot of support on that. And everything about it is good. Sherry Rose is wonderful. She, wonderful she is. You know, to this She's day, so I'm great. not sure what she looks like because all I ever saw her in was the makeup. Really, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. she, 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 she's beautiful. But uh, she's beautiful. you know, yeah. she, she was so, she was so. When I say naked, emotionally naked, and yet you couldn't see her face. I know, and she did such a great job, and uh, and I remember I think we ca cast Peter Onorati the night before. Yeah, yeah, and that and I think I was really hard to cast that part. Yeah, because I was sweating bullets because we didn't have anybody, and it was like the night before. And I, Gil, you must have gotten Peter. Right? Uh, you know, it, that I, or, I don't Victoria remember. Victoria was reaching Victoria Burroughs, who was who did our casting, was reaching in, into her into her friend list, to going, oh, you, you got to do me this. It was a hard part to cast because he's an abusive man, right? And also the sex in it's very raw, and and it was, and and they were uh, God bless them. They were both very, uh, uh, you know, fearless in the in making the show. So it's a terrific episode. It's haunting, and the music, the way that 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 the music and really the sound. Uh, it's one it actually won an award for uh, uh, the music, the sound effects.
it captures that that same haunting quality that, that the music in uh, Forbidden <clears throat> Planet does. Although yeah. they, they they don't call it music. What do they call it? They call Electronic it, tonalities. Yeah, they couldn't call <laughs> it music because the because they weren't uh, union musicians as right. well. <laughs> right. So yeah, it uh, but it had the music. Well, the the sound in 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 that episode uh, is has the same feeling. Yeah. Well, thank you. You also did uh, one of our episodes in England. I I did, I did. I remember uh, 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 being in England. That was the funniest thing I remember about the show in England was. Do you remember the guard at the gate? At the front gate, at, at yeah, Ealing at the front studio? gate. To e we were at Ealing Studios. Yeah. Well, right. okay, all right. Let, 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 let's take a step. Okay, so you're a guy who who loves movies. You're a you're a film guy. Yeah. Okay, so walking onto MGM Studios, yes, you were used to it to a degree because you you had gotten onto it, but that's still an exciting thing to walk on to the lot at MGM. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, very exciting. And so to walk on to Ealing, the, the stu oh, Ealing, Ealing studio. studio. Lot, all those great movies, yeah, that came out of Ealing. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that was wonderful. Actually, to see the corridor and you see your name on the door, you know, at Ealing Studios, that was that was really cool. That was really cool. But what what I was going to say is the the guard there. Okay, you go there every day, right? The guard <laughs> every day that me would say, "I'm sorry, what's your name and where are you going? Who are you?" <laughs> And I go, I was, I've been here for the last, you know, two weeks. <laughs> I'm still the same guy. All us Americans looked alike to them. If it's any consolation, we were there for, what, six months? And he did the same thing with us every day. <laughs> we, we, we went out to dinner with him. In fact, I slept with him a couple of times. Every, <laughs> same goddamn thing. But, you know, what was great about that is I remember being there. And I had like a, in the, the uh, in my episode, they, they had like a, a a graveyard scene in a crypt and uh and i remember the aed would come up to me and say all right governor what's next <laughs> and, and i was looking around going i think i'm shooting a hammer horror film <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it was so cool and then one of the, the set decoration guys said oh you know the crypt door is 400 years old i went yeah <laughs> that was cool and I remember Gil being upset. I don't, do you remember this? You were upset because they didn't know how, how to use an electric nail gun. <laughs> they I'm still Makita. I'm Makita. <laughs> yeah. Where's the Makita? Yeah. Where are the Makitas? Yeah. We bought them some when we left. When we finished the show, we, we bought them some Makitas. <laughs> I'm surprised you remember that because... A lot of people remember that story, and because I remember blowing up at some meeting where I'd say, "What do you mean you're taking? We're taking three penny nails, and you put them in your mouth, and you take one at a time with a hammer, and you and you're hitting the. Well, we don't do that. We we have where's the staple gun? Where's the Makitas? Bang, 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 bang. The walls up. <laughs> and these guys <laughs> looking at me like, "What is he talking about? Bang, bang, bang. The wall is up." Well, another thing too is is that I remember shooting my episode there, and. It was, I don't remember what the time was. It was like four in the afternoon or something like that. I'm in the middle of a take and they pull the plug. Right. Because it's time for break. It's tea. time for coffee, tea, tea time. Tea break, yeah. They pulled the plug on the camera. We're in the middle of a shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we couldn't do anything about that. Because I, I, I would say to the guys, can, can we just finish, you know, 
don't don't that's that's rude to do that can we just let the director finish the shot and and you know if it's 30 seconds it'll be 30 seconds if it's a minute but it's not going to it's not going to be 10 minutes so can't we just have the courtesy and they would go no no no, no we have to have our break no no we, we need to break <laughs> i know i was like pulling my hair out going, oh yeah we were strangers in a strange land yes we, we, were. we were indeed yeah the, your episode, I think, was one of the strongest we did in in England, which was, uh, I don't think, our strongest season. <laughs> to be, you know, I, to be I I have to say, I I don't think my episode was particularly successful, only because I, I realized later that the problem, because it was an episode I wrote, and it was actually a feature, and it just didn't fit into the time slot. It was just, it was too big for what I was trying to do. And I think it was a it was a mistake. It was ambitious, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just overly ambitious. But it looks great. It, it's just a great looking. But but your stuff always does. It's just haunting. Oh well, thank you, thank you. We get back to America. Yeah. Among the projects that was sitting on our plate that needed immediate dealing with was a thing called Weird World. Weird World. Weird World. Married with Children's Ed O'Neill brings together the greatest minds on Earth. The government has promised to leave us alone. To find the secrets of the future. Two days from now, I'm going to be murdered. But sometimes, knowing too much... I found a way to reverse the aging process. ...can kill you. You'll never get away with this. I already have. Welcome to a world unlike anything you've ever seen. Weird World on the Fox Tuesday Night Movie. The partners had made a deal with uh, Fox for a, a, a backdoor pilot, a, a movie which was based on the, the science fiction comics from EC. But uh-huh. Weird Science was already taken, so we couldn't call our we couldn't call it Weird Science. We had to call it something else, Weird World, which isn't the same. Uh, then we we bumped into a problem. We we had, we had gone and written the script. Scott Nimmerfro, Gill, and I. And at no point had anyone said, hey, there's going to be a budget. Right. And so we, we, we just wrote. Yeah. And then we came back from England and I get a call from F.A. Miller who had just gone through the script and budgeted it and then looked at the number that we actually had. And no one had ever said, oh, by the way, here's, I think it was 1.9 was what we had to make it total. No one had ever considered that number while we wrote the script. F.A. budgets the script out and says, we could probably do the script you have now for $3.6 million. (laughs) You have (laughs) 1.9. You have a problem. (laughs) And so we, after panicking, (laughs) running around with our hair literally on fire, we, uh, we found ways to strip out this and strip out that. And, and I think we, the way that we ultimately got the shooting day down to, what was our schedule on that? It was 18 days. 18 days. The, the concession that you, that you said, the only way we can do this was I got to have a steady cam every day. Right. And that was our concession. And, and right. we said, Hey, <laughs> whatever, whatever we can do to make this, this was yeah. a well, potential fiasco. People ask me what's the worst thing I've ever done. Weird world. <laughs> it was hard. That was. I, I don't think anybody's heart was in that one. You know, what's weird is that there's actually a lot of people who really love it who think it's like the best thing ever. And I go, okay, well, whatever. 
the only thing the only thing I, I wanted that I insisted on was that big machine because I said you have to have a set piece you have to have one set piece yeah that you go okay this, we're seeing something big you know and I remember Greg Melton sweated over that making that thing yeah <laughs> that yeah. was not the most rewarding thing anybody anyone you know, any one of us ever did I as I recall the and, and our the union struck us on that they did that was another thing is like in the middle of my shoot they yeah. struck and I think I lost like a half a day or a day or something on it yeah and, yeah they they uh, and I that was that was not a shoot you can't do that that was not a fun day I remember when uh when the union died because I was I was on because I was I, I was producing them and I was on set that day and and uh I had to get Joel on the phone and, and I said uh Joel the the union just shut us down and I, I then I, I can't quite describe the noise he made, <laughs> but I heard him and it wasn't through the phone. <laughs> then the next thing you know, Joel is is over there and uh, they negotiate with with our crew and they finally came to a deal. Nobody was happy. Nobody was happy. <laughs> Nobody. And so we finally all got back to work, having lost the time that we couldn't afford to lose. Uh, yeah how not to make a movie how not to make a tv movie that's for sure uh you know that, that uh, alas a uh, weird world and this is this is such a i guess this, what i could say for it is uh it doesn't even merit its own podcast no it does not <laughs> there's some things better left forgotten <laughs> <laughs> And with that, you've gone on to, to you went on to do a couple of uh, of other projects like Masters of Horror and yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, House on Haunted Hill, which uh, which uh, Jill was a, uh, a you know definitely a, a part of that, a big part. House on Haunted Hill. How do you feel about that as you as you stand here today? Uh, I'm proud of the work. It was a horrifying experience. That's the best way I can put it. It was absolutely a nightmare for me to make, uh, but I'm proud of I'm proud of what I did with it, and proud of our work together on it, and, and so forth. But it was what what made it challenging. Um, there was a guy who uh, <laughs> who was uh, large and large and in charge, who made life a living hell. You know, I wasn't that, I wasn't that overweight. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what Joel Silver stories do you have? <laughs> uh, and, and everyone loves Joel Silver stories. Well, I'll tell you actually the, no, Joel would want to have a discussion every lunchtime and which I then lost my appetite. So I was like, uh, and it's probably why I got really sick during the show. I don't know if you remember, I caught the flu and just like was doing it. Yeah. And if you're a director, there's no such thing as taking time off for, you know, being sick. There's just no such thing. You cannot be sick. So uh, I, you know, patched myself together as best I could and continued. But the, no, I mean, Joel made it a, a living nightmare, you know, to make that, that show. Hmm. Was he always, he was challenging your, your decisions? It was a climate of paranoia. Everyone that you talked to on that show, uh, it was just a nightmarish. It really was. I mean, I felt every day when I went to to work, I felt like I was swimming in acid. That's the best way of putting it. 
Uh, you know, and I'm sure Gil was probably feeling the same way. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. 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 It's it I mean, was the, the, the only the only redeeming part of that was Jeffrey Rush was such a great man to work with. He was. He was. He was great. And uh, the crew. No, the ca the cast was great. And, yeah. you know, the crew was all on edge and uh, it was just, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it was uh, very difficult. Very well, difficult. Why, why was the crew on edge? I guess because Joel was doing the same thing to the crew that he was doing to you know, to, yeah. to myself and everyone else. So, you know, Joel uh, would love to come in and rebel rouse. He would just like to stir it up and stir it up, and then walk yeah, away he'd say, "Oh yeah," he'd come in at lunchtime, go, "Oh, so so and so doesn't like what you're doing," and da da da, and you know, he'd like he'd try and start some argument or something like that. Yeah, he would just stir it up. He used to do that all the time with us. Yeah, and and, uh, and it took me years to figure out. Oh, that's what he's that's what he's about. That's what he yeah. wants to do. That's that gives him power. Yeah, yeah. Um, until I realized that, and then worked, figured out how to work around that. Um, it was it was painful. I used to have you know terrible stomach problems and well, feel like I, I'm gonna throw up. Well, actually, uh, uh, I, I don't want to go into gory details. Let's say uh, about a pint of blood came out of me during the making of that, wow. and uh, one day, and uh, wow, really? Yeah, during one day, and I said, okay, yeah. And this was sort of towards the end of the shooting. I said, okay, my thing, all, all I need to do is survive this. Jesus uh, uh, oh my actually, my, my best moment on that entire film was we were shooting the scene where uh, Chris Kattan is at the bottom of the hill. It, I, we shot it up by Griffith Park and all the, the, the cast is coming up to, to go to the house. And it was the nighttime, and I remember Joel came up and he goes, I'm not very happy about what's going on here, and I'm not happy with the way the show looks. And I looked at him, I said, Joel, I've been thinking the same thing. Tell you what, I'll stay on until you find another director. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll just, you, you find another director and I'll stay on till, till then. And he suddenly started backpedaling, you know, and then, uh, you know, he pretty much after that left me alone until the end of the shoot. Uh, and then, of course, the post-production, it was another nightmare. So, yeah. So that, that was Joel's modus operandi. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder how I survived as many years as I did working with that guy. I don't know how you did it. You're I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how I did it either, because it wasn't it wasn't very different from what you're describing. You know, we did have some moments where it was pleasant. We used to get into arguments because I would say to him, Joel, we're not talking, we're arguing. And he would say, that's how we talk. We only argue. And I go, I don't want to just only argue. Why can't we talk and save the arguments for when it really has some meaning? And I think back on that stuff and I, and I laugh because those lines seem to me now very funny. Yeah. But in those days, it was like, it was just, it was just torture. Everything, everything was an argument. Everything was a challenge. Everything was, you know. Yeah. And there was no reason for it, really. There was right. no Right. Really no reason for it. Right. So, and all, all any of us were trying to do is make the best thing we could possibly make. But even, you know, but it like tainted everything. Even like when the, the studio executives would talk to me, I was going. <laughs> <It's Yeah>. like, <laughs> it makes it incredibly challenging. You're 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 fighting your circumstances to begin with. Now you're fighting the executive producer, too, who's really just. He's yeah, and, and, yeah. I mean, all you're trying to do there is make the best movie you can, and you know that that was, you know, I think the problem with us is we cared. Yeah, and I think in the best of situations, you know, you're 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 
you got time problems, you got money problems, you've got personality problems, you've got maybe actor problems, you have schedule problems of this set or that prop being ready on time. All that's part of the course and all that we accept and we go, okay, we'll we'll deal with that. We can deal with that stuff. And on top of that, you have this other sort of irrational challenge where you go, okay, ha, ha, what, what what is the answer to this? And, and the answer really, there was no answer to it. Well, look, guys, I want to say something to both of you, and that is that, you know, and I know things things were tough then and stuff, and all this stuff was going on. And I want I just wanted to say that I love you both. I really do. And uh, and I really enjoyed the time that we spent together making these these shows. Thanks for saying that. And, and, we, and, and likewise, I mean, I, I, I look back very fondly of working with you. And and even spending time in England together, I think we had a couple of funny funny. Yeah, some very things. funny times then. Yeah. yeah, and and you know when I think back on those days, those were fun, one of my some of my fondest memories of of what you know working with you, prepping with you, shooting with you, because I think we both had the same approach to it. We you know we all the three of us all had the intention of making it the best show we possibly could, dealing with problems as best we could. And there were always pro- there were always problems, and acknowledging that, and just keeping keep moving, and yeah. keeping keeping the level and the quality high. Yeah, I tried to never let that stuff get in the way, but you know, it was it was very difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other the other feature that there was a what was the, the little independent horror? I just went up on the on the title the uh, something dot com. Oh, fear.com. Fear.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I I, I went up on the title. Uh, that was that was also a problematic. It was problematic. Yeah, for different reasons. I, I, yeah, I mean, I had a producer who, um, who who's well intentioned, but just you know, um, he, he wanted to bring his friends in to do a lot of stuff that, and they weren't qualified, you know, and and yeah. and and then we just. It got to a point where I had to make a decision. Either I was going to stay with the film or leave the film. And I just I just couldn't bring myself to leave the film. So it became a problematic feature, I think. You 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 have been terribly unlucky that way with yeah. with, with, with some projects. And and it it's 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 not it's not fair. It it it's just not fair. Uh you know, you're at least I think, God, what a talented, incredibly talented movie maker. This, this should not be happening to him. But then again, I think Bordello shouldn't happen to me. But this is my opinion. <laughs> Wait well, a minute. I, I, I take exception when you say Bordello shouldn't have happened to you. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, how about the we? How about well, the we? Well, well, yeah, well, yes. But, but you know, you you still went on to have a career. At, at the end of the day, I kind of cratered. You know, it, it was, it, for me, it, it set off... And again, it's part of the story that we tell in 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 that part of of the podcast. You know, I was I was not the right person for that job to to produce that movie. I wasn't. I I it required someone with a lot more confidence than I had to to deal with all the bullshit. Uh, an incompetent person cannot deal with bullshit. They become the prisoner of the bullshit, and that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, hey, but. Uh, at the end of the day, hey, 20, 25 years later, okay, now I I understand the story. Uh, I and 
I see value in this story and I see value in our collective stories. Uh, and, and, you know, for me, what, what the podcast is the happy ending to, to the, to that movie. Now, mm -hmm. the cool thing is that you also have a happy ending, Bill. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I made another film, which was a little indie movie called Parasomnia, which I'm very proud of, uh, and financed it myself, something you should never do. Uh, yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, I had the misfortunes of financing it right when the entire bottom fell out of the movie business. But I do think, you had, if I remember correctly, I, th I think you had a, an exceptional editor on that. I did. I did. I had a, a really great editor, a guy named, uh, let's see, what's his name? Something like, uh, I don't want to mention any names, but his initials are Tony Adler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm very proud of it. I'm, I think it's really a cool film. And uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting sort of way those old things turn out. What's it called again? Parasomnia. Actually, the entire title is Parasomnia Dreams of the Sleepwalker. And um, yeah, it was uh, uh, self-financed. I financed it along with a partner uh, and uh, uh, we shot for 42 days. Mm. Wow. And it's got 175 effect shots in it or something like that. So, wow. Yeah. What what was what was your budget at the end? What, what did it cost? Uh, uh, well, the all in budget I think was one point four million. So, uh, actually out of pocket, well, I think was eight hundred thousand, something like that, in cash. Yeah, so, a bold thing to do. Yeah, something you don't do more than once. <laughs> but it was your passion. But it was a passion project. It was a passion project, and I'm glad I did it. I, I have never regretted it for a moment. You know, so. Well, yeah, it it in, in its way it it that money, however, it, it probably brought you more satisfaction. It did, and you know it was great making it, and it's just like there was nobody. I was the only person. The only thing that was like scary is I go around, I look around, I go, "There's a lot of people working here. I'm paying for all these people." <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know it's funny. I don't know if you knew this. I actually shot it on the same stage as we shot the House on Haunted Hill. In Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita, yep. On this exact same wow. stage. Wow. Same one that the uh, the uh, the main room was in. The, yeah, yeah. So. Where can anyone see this film? Uh, well, it's currently out of... Uh, I'm going to re-release it this year, in fact. It just came out of uh, uh, our deal that I had on the film, so I'm going to re-release it sometime this year. Cool, cool. You know, I'll I can put it up on YouTube or on um, Vimeo and send you a link to it. So if you guys want to see it, would love would love, yeah, to, I'd hey, love to see it too. Absolutely, would, would love to. Yeah, Sean Sean Young and Tim, Timothy Bottoms and uh, wow. And, when did you uh, make it? Uh, made it in uh, uh, finished it in 2010. Yeah. So uh, and also has uh, Jeff Combs and who else is in it? Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, Catherine Lee Scott from Dark Shadows. Oh, cool. Oh, cool, cool, cool. In the end, uh, Robbie the Robot. Yes, yes, Robbie. Came, came back into play. In, in, well, in what happened was when he became, yeah, when he went up for sale, I had had him since 1980. And uh, 
during that time, you know, when I bought him, he was just like a prop, just something to have. He was like a toy, a fun thing that I always loved and so forth. But over the uh, intervening years, he'd become more and more important historically, you know, as far as a, an icon uh, in film. And uh, in the, the last- market, well, well, the, the market for these four items like Robbie suddenly just started exploding. Yeah. I mean, you, you had like a Marilyn Monroe's dress going for $4 million and the, yeah. And the, uh, what the Batmobile going for like three and a half or $4 million. And, you know, and I was becoming aware that Robbie was uh, becoming very valuable and it became, uh, I started worrying about him all the time. And it was always like, gosh, if I leave the house, is the house going to burn down? Is somebody going to break in and vandal? I didn't really think it was going to steal him, but I thought, would, you know, something untoward could happen, you know? And I thought, you know, this, and I started like spending all my time worrying. And I said, no, no, I can't. You had become it. aware that this thing had not just a value, but an appreciating value. Yeah, it's just money-wise and importance in film. And uh, so, you know, because for Forbidden Planet was like becoming more and more important. It's, it's interesting because, TCM, when they first put Forbidden Planet up, this was many years ago, it got like two stars. And now it became a four-star movie, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I, I, you know, so it was a hard decision. I thought, you know, I really need to find another home for Robbie. So I put it up at auction and uh, he broke all records. He's the most expensive prop ever sold at auction and the most expensive thing, thing ever sold at Bonhams in New York. So... The the sale price was was uh, four point five million, and the, the the buyer actually paid five point four. So, yeah. And yeah. where does where does Robbie live now? Where does Robbie live now? Uh, well, I, he's they won't tell me, and I have no idea. So, <laughs> Holding him hostage. He's the, yeah, I I have this horrible thought that maybe it's like the ending of Citizen Kane, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's not Rose, but they're not going to throw him into the oven, are they? Oh, you know, but he's in some box somewhere in storage, you know. So he's the uh, it's the end of uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, lost art. To tell you, they're afraid to tell you because they think you'll come in and steal them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do know he's on the West Coast. I, some place probably near gill somewhere yeah i'm in vancouver canada yeah somewhere in the maybe washington or someplace like that so, really wow yeah. that's yeah. what i understand he got shipped and the, the the buyer shipped him in a nitrogen container and all that stuff. Wow. oh wow wow yeah, he had a fine arts company come and pick him up and it, you know what's weird is like the morning that morning actually i'll tell you a funny story the, the day before we were in New York, my wife and I, and I did, actually didn't want to go. I, just, I thought, I don't really want to go. I what were your expectations? Did you have any, what, as you, as you I, I had was none. there a number in your head that you thought, well, maybe we could. Well, yeah, yeah, actually, I put a reserve at 3.5 million because I thought to myself, or was it 3 million? I think it was 3 million. I thought, because I didn't really want to sell them unless he went for you know, a decent amount of money. And I, I, so I put a reserve on it. And the day before we'd gone in and uh, the auction and, and uh, we, of course I put them on display and stuff. And uh, uh, when, I, when we went in, the guys, uh, the 
uh, auctioneer said, well, nobody has signed up for the auction. And so that day we're thinking, oh, God, I mean, we've got to pack them back up. And because we're in New York, got to pack them up and get them back to Los Angeles and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we thought, well, what, what are we going to do? So the next morning, the day of the auction, we walk in and the, and I was talking to the auctioneer and she, I said, uh, you know, look, we'll have to figure out how to get them back. She said, no, I don't think you're taking them home. Because uh, uh, we got uh, several people signing up for them, and they're big players, and uh, mm. so mm. We, so my wife wanted to some kind of special treat, so I took her to the Seinfeld uh, restaurant, Tom's restaurant in New York, where they shot the Seinfeld, that, and, and that was based on the words "big players." Yeah, because uh, you heard <laughs> "big players," and you said yeah. this was this was going to probably end well. Yeah. by the way worst food ever but <laughs> oh. anyway. so so but we we went to the auction what was interesting about the auction it was that uh uh when they started you know we were listening to all of the other uh, uh items coming up for sale and when robbie came up the auctioneer says we'd like to start the auction at 1.4 million and you could hear there was a notable gasp in the audience going what did she just say? Because everybody's walking by this thing going, oh, what's this thing going to go for, you know? <laughs> and, and then it started, you know, and then we fairly quickly, we, we it went for like uh, two million. And then and we thought, well, we're not really sold yet. Then suddenly it went to 2.5 and then it went to 3 million. I said, he's gone now. And then I thought, well, that's it, you know, and then 3.5 and then 3.8. And then I was going, top of my head started to come off. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were starting to bid up the price of houses, you know, and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. So anyway, that, but, but what was weird is like, then I, I had to go back downstairs and pack them back up. And it was weird because before it was just like something I owned, you know, yeah, I just, but, but now it's like, oh no, it's not mine anymore. I got to be really careful. <laughs> Well, and, and not only is he not yours, he's not yours to the tune of an awful lot of money. Of money, yeah. <laughs> I better be damn careful. Oh, man. <laughs> How did you feel, though? How did you feel packing him up emotionally? I mean, were you okay with that, or is there a bit of a tug? No, you know, I was totally okay with it, because I'd had him for, you know, 40 years, and yeah. almost 40 years. I looked at him every morning and just had coffee with him, and he was great, and I loved him and stuff, and... And uh, so he really was in a prominent place in your house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he was, you know, on display and stuff like that. And I, I saw him every day. And and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I enjoyed him. And I, I think I was ready to let him go. Did, so did, did, yeah. he, did he work during the time you had him or he just had I, him? I, occasionally? But but as he became more and more valuable, I became more nervous about <laughs> him. I mean, the last thing I did with him was uh, Looney Tunes back in action. I don't know if you saw that one, but uh, uh, but anyway, it's a Joe Dante film, and and Joe always I like to have Robbie in his shows, so uh, he's that's the original Robbie in that. So yeah. Anyway, so that was that was it. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, does that feel like uh, like there's a certain amount of you you still walked away with 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 a degree of victory from this town. You, you, you still something, you, you got something. You know what? I actually feel like I got victory on that first crypt episode, honestly. Cool. 
Yeah, cool. that was that was the one. Uh, can I tell you something? I don't think I've ever mentioned either. Is is that before before doing that episode, I had made two features, and I, and of course Freddy's Nightmares, and you know, and a show called Dark Justice, and some other stuff. But um, I always felt like the production was on top of me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, if that makes any sense. It was sure. I just felt like I was underneath it, you know. And that crypt episode was the first time I walked in and went. I'm on top of this, you know, it's like, and from then on, I felt like, felt like that when I was making anything, I felt like, you know, that I was no longer under the project. I was, I was, you know, you were the master of it. Yeah. I was, I was on, you know, able to work it. Yeah. Well, certainly, as I said, it's, it is a, it's a piece of art. That episode, it's, it's, it's everything that that, that an episode had to be. Yeah. Well, and th- thank you all for making it happen. So, you know. Uh, and thank you for, for making this happen, Bill, for, for, for sitting here with us. And, and uh, well, first of all, it's just great to catch up because we haven't we haven't looked at each other and not I know. looking I know. at each other, but uh, we have not in any way looked at each other in a gazillion years. So it's wonderful yeah. to catch up. And and, uh, and likewise, it's great seeing both of you. And, and, and Gil, I, I don't stay a stranger. Well, I'm going to I'm going to ask Alan to send me the your email address and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll write to you and, and we'll and we'll have another conversation. Thanks, Bill. This was really really delightful and and long overdue. Yeah, long overdue. Yeah, one of, one of the things about, about Alan, thank you for making this happen. And this oh, been... it's a pleasure. And uh, I'm just going to do our little sign off here and uh, thank you everyone for, for for listening. And we'll see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrific Crypt content. 